0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. June 8, 1983. Revolution Airways Flight 8, a Lockheed L 188C with 15 people on board, is en route from Cold Bay, Alaska to Seattle, Washington. The 10 passengers are mostly hunters and anglers, and they're joined by five crew members. Shortly after takeoff, the pilots notice an odd vibration. The flight engineer leaves the cockpit to visually check the engines and sees nothing out of the ordinary. A short time later, a flight attendant enters the cockpit to discuss the vibration as it has increased in intensity. When she leaves the cockpit and returns to the cabin, she looks out the window and to her horror, she sees the propeller from engine number four detach, go forward from the engine, then veer to the left and strike the fuselage, damaging the flight controls. The impact tears a hole eight feet wide into the bottom of the cabin, causing explosive decompression. The rapid change in air pressure and temperature creates a heavy fog, obscuring vision and starving the cabin of oxygen. What could have caused this terrifying mechanical failure? Did the crew manage an emergency landing under these conditions? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi, Gus. Here with another episode. I like this one because if for no other reason, I like the name Cold Bay, Alaska. It's like, you know what you're getting with that town. That is good (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like a horror movie. Like you look out the window and then the propeller comes off. I picture it something like you would see in a movie or like like one of the final destination or something and you're like, oh, that would never happen. Uh, But it did. It's like, huh, what's that weird noise? And then you look out and just...
1: The
0: flight, we'll we'll get into it in a bit, but the flight attendant, when she saw it happen, she was afraid the propeller was going to come and hit her and kill her. (gasps) Because it detached and it came in the direction she was standing.
1: Oh, that's terrifying.
0: Right, yeah, it went under her and uh, created the hole at the bottom of the the fuselage of the plane. So yeah, luckily it went, gravity pulled it down a little bit so it did not come straight, you know, to the left and hit her. Wow. It's a really interesting, because, and I wanted, this has been one of those episodes I've wanted to do for a long time because it sounds really dramatic. I'm going to be honest Uh with you, there's not not a lot to it. (laughs) But (laughs) it's just like the idea of a propeller coming off and, you know, hitting the fuselage is like you said it's so dramatic it seems like something out of a movie plus you got cold bay alaska going on
1: yeah which yeah that great name <laughs> i think i'd buy salmon from there i bet you can i you know what i'm going to look right now chris <laughs> it just seems like
0: cold bay alaska salmon the coldest waters with the best salmon it looks like they do have salmon fishing there it looks like they've got Ooh, yeah, the legendary fishing in Cold Bay and the local streams and river is some of the last untouched world-class salmon. Mm. I'm, I'm, yeah. just, I'm looking at an outfitter place where you can go <laughs> up there and go fishing and like charter a boat and stuff. It's expensive. Let's go, Gus, let's go. Let's get some salmon from Cold Bay. You fly us. <laughs> Before we get salmon from Cold Bay, I do want to remind everyone to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Believe it or not, even though this happened, well, I don't want to give a spoiler. You're going to want to check out the social media. I'm going to tell you what's going to be in there later.
1: I assume it's uh, booking information for our salmon
0: fishing (laughs) tour. Use code (laughs) Cold (laughs) Bay. Anyway, 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 let's get back on track here. It's founded in 1946, based out of Anchorage, Alaska. Service nonstop flights between Cold Bay, obviously in Alaska, and Seattle Tacoma, Seattle Tacoma Airport in Washington State, flying the Lockheed L-188 Electra. This is an older plane. I'm going to get that out of the way right now. Uh Like if you're trying to picture it, picture like a photo taken in black and white of a four engine propeller plane. Like something you would expect to see in the 50s or the 60s, kind of like at the dawn of the jet age. It was
1: a 1983. How old of a plane was it then?
0: So the plane itself was delivered initially in 1959. So it was like wow. 24, am I doing that math right? 24 years old at that point.
1: Yeah, so it's, it, th- at this point, it'd be real old. <laughs> yeah, it was an old plane.
0: I, and I just say that because I know I like to try to give people an idea of what kind of plane we're dealing with. And this is not one, most likely none of our listeners have ever flown on a plane like this. It's pretty old. And the Electra was the backbone of Revolution Airways from the late 60s until the Boeing 727 jet joined the fleet, you know, Years later, so this was a plane that they flew quite a bit. The airline was founded by Bob Reeve after a strike by sailors on steamships operating between Seattle and Anchorage. So there was a strike going on with the ships, mm-hmm. and so Bob Reeve was like, "You know what? I'm going to start an airline. <laughs> yeah. Let's uh, let's use planes instead." The Revolution Airways ceased operations at the end of 2000 after facing increased competition and high fuel prices, with only one Lockheed Electra and one Boeing 727 in service at that time. They were around for quite a bit between 1946 and, you know, 2000, that's 54 years. Mm-hmm. That's a long run for an airline, especially like that one that's so so niche as this one. I, be, I bet they ran a lot of salmon. I bet I bet they made a lot oh. of money flying salmon out of Cold Bay. Yeah. And we will too, Gus. We will too, Chris. We'll we'll, we'll do it one day, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> so this particular flight, Revolution Airways flight 8 was crewed by Captain James Gibson, who was 54 years old, had 5,700 hours flying experience, flying Electras, 39-year-old First Officer Gary Lintner, and 45-year-old Flight Engineer Gerald Moose Lauren. Well, it's an older plane, so they had three people in the mm-hmm. cockpit. They needed an engineer yeah. as well. And like I mentioned at the very beginning, the engineer leaves the cockpit to go take a look at the engines. Anyway, this plane, this specific Electra, was tail number 1968 Romeo. It had flown approximately 33,000 hours in service at the time of this accident. It had a lot of hours on it. And it was sold to Reeves Aleutian after initially being sold to Qantas in 1959 and served other airlines, including Air New Zealand and the California Air Motive Corporation. So it started in Australia and made its way across the Pacific Ocean. It stopped in New Zealand, stopped in California, and then made its way up to Alaska. Wow. The flight left Cold Bay at 1.42 p.m. local time with clear skies and a noticeable lack of turbulence. Normally that area, that part of Alaska, can be pretty turbulent because of the Aleutian Mountains and Pacific winds. Uh This day and this takeoff stood out in people's minds because it was a very calm day, no turbulence. During cruise climb, the aircrew noted unusual vibration and they were unable to determine the cause. So while climbing from flight level 190 to flight level 250, so for between 19,000 and 25,000 feet, the flight engineer left the cockpit to go visually check the aft engines, but couldn't really see anything. Nothing seemed unusual to him. So w- when he visually checks them, how how do, how do they do that? Do, is there like
1: a, a, a hatch that they look through or is he looking out the window or what? He's looking out the passenger windows. Okay, so it's not like there's like a special hatch that he
0: can like check them on. It's, it's just a, okay. I'm going off the top of my head here. If I remember right, I believe... The way this plane was laid out is it had some area in the cabin set aside for cargo and some set aside for passengers. And I believe Mm -hmm. he went out to like the cargo type area and was looking through there. And it's not like it's walled off or anything. It's just got like cargo netting over it to like hold it in place Mm -hmm. separate from the passengers. So he was like in that area uh, kind of looking out the window.
1: It sounds like a very kind of a plane that's used for like multipurpose purpose Kind of get things done playing.
0: Yeah. It makes me think of the beginning of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when Indiana Jones is mm. in the plane with the chicken and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're just like the passengers who happen to be in a cargo plane. It's not 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 to that extreme, but it makes me think of that. Yeah, because there won't be chickens. There's going to be salmon. Correct. The chicken of the sea. No, wait, that's tuna. Yeah. <laughs> so after the flight engineer returned to the cockpit, senior flight attendant Wendy Kroon entered the cockpit to inform the captain that the vibration intensity was increasing and as she left the cockpit she looked out the window just as the number 4 propeller separated from the engine and struck Whoa. the aircraft tearing an 8 foot gash in the belly of the fuselage all the way into the cabin oh my god she said that she could see straight through and she could see the ocean beneath her feet that it had torn that is a, terrifying yeah a hole straight through the cabin she was scared to be standing there or to step over it because there was nothing between her and the ocean right there. So it was a very long hole. It was about eight feet long, but it wasn't a very wide hole. But still, any okay. hole where you can see the ocean from a plane, is you don't want to see that. That's no good. How 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 wide was it? I mean, I guess at the widest. I don't think it ever said here. I think at its widest, it was just uh, like a couple of inches. That's better than what was in my head. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to say it was like three to four inches or so. I don't know if the reports gave the specific amount. This is also an older incident, so the reports are a little different, mm, but I yeah. believe it wasn't terribly big. Like, it was small enough to where she could step over. She, she talks about how she could have stepped over, but she was scared too, so she, like, went around and crawled over the seats <laughs> to avoid <laughs> stepping over the hole. So you could step over it, but you wouldn't want to. I, I,
1: yeah, but also I feel like you wouldn't want to step on it because you wouldn't want to put unnecessary weight or pressure around the hole. Also, right.
0: right. Right. You don't know how weak it is. The, the breach, you know, since it pierced the cabin and depressurized it, the temperature changed rapidly and this caused like a heavy fog to rapidly form inside the plane. Ooh. So it made everything foggy, like people couldn't see. And it also, you know, starved the cabin of oxygen. So all the oxygen, you know, got depressurized. Like, all the oxygen went out from the yeah. plane and a cloud formed <laughs> inside the plane in place of oxygen. So they had to use, you know, their emergency oxygen masks. And the pilots had to fight to even see the instruments because there was, the fog was so dense in the plane. So they had to kind of like try to get the fog to, what do you call it, dissipate mm. before they could really take stock of what was going on and what the situation was. When the fog cleared, Captain Gibson noticed the aircraft was veering to the right out towards the Bering Sea. He tried to level the wings and pull the plane back on course, but he described the controls as being stuck in concrete. Like he tried to... Whoa. You know, bank to the left, but he said they were just not moving. They were abs the controls were absolutely stuck.
1: And how much of that was because of the propeller not being there, and
0: how much of it was because of the hole in the plane? At this point, the crew doesn't know what's causing it. All they know, you know, is that all of a sudden the plane depressurized, there was fog, and now they're in a right bank. They do very quickly figure out that something's wrong with the number four engine and you know the propeller's gone, but they just can't turn it. Like the controls are just stuck, mm. like not moving. And what's worse is this lack of control prevented them from descending to a lower altitude with more oxygen. Remember, they're still pretty high. They need, you know, supplemental oxygen at that at that altitude. Yeah. So they were unable to manually maneuver the aircraft. So the captain engaged the autopilot. Oh. And this kind of plane, this Lockheed Electra has two sets of control cables, and the manual control cables had become jammed but the autopilot control cable still seemed to be working. Oh. And we've talked about like control cables in the past. You know, sometimes planes can have, you know, big planes we think about, they have hydraulics to help move yeah. all of the different, you know, control surfaces. Sometimes instead they'll have cables, like ca- like steel cables and pulleys. In this case, this plane had two different sets of cables. One which was activated by the control column that the pilots moved, and another set that was used by the autopilot. So. They couldn't move theirs; it was just stuck like concrete. But the autopilot's cables were still working, apparently.
1: That's lucky. That and, and I, I guess again going back to the always having a, a backup, the fact that there are two separate systems.
0: Yeah, it really paid off here. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot of redundancy in planes. Even back then, you know, this is an old plane. They had redundancy even yeah. you know back when this was delivered in 1959. I, I didn't even realize there was autopilot in 1959. Yeah, I mean, it's not like what you think about nowadays. Like, nowadays, a modern autopilot could, you know, conceivably take you all the way to the runway and pretty much land the plane. This autopilot is that they're dealing with is a lot more rudimentary. It's more like, Mm -hmm. hold a heading, hold an altitude. Mm. Maybe that's about it, you know? Nothing too fancy. So, the autopilot managed to keep the aircraft on a steady descending path, but they still needed to decrease speed, and turning was near impossible. The throttle controls were unresponsive and, you know, they only, we've talked about this before. There's only a limited supply of emergency oxygen. The oxygen generators aren't intended for prolonged use. They might last, nowadays they last, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Uh, But I don't know what kind of oxygen generators they used back then in 1983. So, you know, eventually they they do manage to reach 10,000 feet where oxygen levels are more acceptable, so they don't have yeah. to, uh, they, they can check that off the list. They don't have to worry about that anymore. Good, <laughs> they've got the oxygen covered. <laughs> so the first officer uh, Lintner grabbed his controls and tried to help the captain overcome the jammed controls to try to allow the aircraft to turn back to Cold Bay. So they're working together. They were able to kind of slowly manually override it and force it to make the turns they needed. And like I mentioned, the autopilot couldn't land the plane and the manual controls kind of lacked precision. So they don't know. <laughs> they can only turn very shallowly. You know, they don't have the fine control they need to land the plane. Ugh.
1: Is it really difficult even to make maneuvers because it's like takes a lot of
0: like strength to push right. and pull? And, mm. It takes a lot of strength and the banks are really shallow. Like it can't turn very sharply. Mm. Just like very slow banking turns. So, you know, every little thing takes a long time to get done. So, you know, they start trying to figure out what their options are. They thought, you know, maybe they should ditch into the ocean in Crystal Bay. Mm. But the conditions were kind of volatile. And they were on the radio with a mechanic on the ground back in Cold Bay. Uh And he he says he tried to convince them, do not ditch in the ocean. (laughs) Like, get back to the airport. Because at the airport, you know, like you know, and they know, they knew at the time, like there's emergency vehicles there. You know, if people are hurt, they can be taken care of right away. If they ditch in the ocean, you know, they got to get boats out there. Got to try to find them. Yeah. And it'd be cold, real cold, because, you know, namesake. Luckily for them, it's June, but it is still a cold bay. Yeah, exactly. Best salmon in the world. (laughs) So, you know, they considered what their options were. And the runway at cold, you know, their engines, they were going too fast. Their engines were stuck at a high, high thrust, high engine output, high RPM. So they didn't think they could land at Cold Bay because the runway was too Mm -hmm. short. So they, you know, were looked at other airports in the area and ultimately they decided they should, you know, turn back and try to go all the way back to Anchorage, which from where the, where the incident happened, it was, they had to fly four hours to get to Anchorage. Oh my goodness. So yeah, they turn around and start making their way to Anchorage, which it's not just also, it's not just a matter of flying the four hours to Anchorage. It's also dangerous because there's mountains in the area. So they need <gasps> and to they make sure they can barely,
1: that, oh my God, right,
0: they can barely maneuver. They need to make sure they have enough maneuverability to clear the mountains and get it all the way to Anchorage, where there's a long enough runway for them to land at, at this high speed that they're going at.
1: So, and that was the best option is Anchorage four hours away. That just seems four crazy. Hours away. But I guess Alaska, there's not a lot of prob- airports, especially probably in what,
0: 83? Right. Especially like one that's got a long runway yeah. and that has adequate you know, emergency services. Yeah, this is scary. (laughs) This episode of Black Box Down is sponsored by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process. I think a lot of us can remember feeling like you had everything figured out early in life, like 18 or 20 years old, only to later look back, feel like you actually knew nothing about yourself at that time. That feeling doesn't only come up in early adulthood because we're constantly growing and changing throughout our entire lives. Therapy can be a great tool for getting a deeper understanding of yourself no matter what stage of life you're in. Sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. Therapy can be a great tool for learning positive coping skills, learning how to set boundaries, and empowering you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of getting therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option that's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Plus, you can choose sessions that are suited to your schedule, so you can fit it in whenever it works best for you. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com BlackBoxDown today. You get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel BlackBoxDown. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip the trips to the grocery store, count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh takes the hassle out of mealtime this spring by delivering pre-portioned ingredients and easy-to-prepare recipes right to your door. Skip the checkout lines, get outside in the warmer weather, because HelloFresh has dinner covered. April's Earth Month, and HelloFresh is always committed to a cleaner planet. On average, HelloFresh meals have a 31% lower carbon footprint than the same meals made from supermarket ingredients. Plus, nearly all HelloFresh's packaging materials are curbside recyclable, In most areas of the United States. I love HelloFresh. I've probably said it a million times, but I think the food's fantastic. I think that it's really easy to make. And whenever I'm done putting all this stuff together, making it, not only do I feel a sense of accomplishment, I also feel very satiated because I've just eaten a delicious meal. It's win-win. At the end of the day, at work, I like going home and just laying out all the ingredients, looking at the instructions and putting it all together and making it. It makes me feel like a real chef. But I'm I'm not. I just pretend to be one. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown50. Use code BlackBoxDown50 for 50% off, plus your first box ships for free. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown50. Code BlackBoxDown50 for 50% off, plus your first box ships free. HelloFresh, it's America's number one meal kit. The engines, like I said, were stuck on full throttle. Revolution Airways Flight 8 approached Anchorage International and Reeve engineer John Minton was brought in to relay options to restore control to the aircraft. This is the person that's on the ground that I told you they were talking to. It was John yeah. Minton who was like, "Do not ditch it in the ocean. Take it to Anchorage." Yeah. So the, you know they have four hours to get to Anchorage. So they start trying to figure out what can we do with this plane. They disengage the autopilot. That, that, that's what John Minton wanted them to do—to disengage the autopilot mm-hmm. to see what the plane was capable of. And they disengage the autopilot. In my head,
1: in my head, I know this is not really real. The, the John Mitten of this is the John C- Cusack of Con Air.
0: <laughs> we, uh, Con Air. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a movie we've done uh, a supplementary episode yeah. on.
1: But it, maybe it's also because they're both Johns. But in yep, my head, maybe. it's the John Cusack of this story, of this movie that we're making after we, after, eat, with eat financing salmon. from our, our Alaskan fishing
0: cruises, uh, air, not cruises, travels. Anyway, go on. So... John Minton convinced them to, you know, disengage the autopilot and the crew noticed they had regained some manual control and that both pilots working together could turn the plane and pull the nose up for a landing. So that's good. The downside is they still had no throttle control. (laughs) That's crazy. It's just, that's why it makes it seem like a movie. It's like, it's just stuck in fast. Not just fast. It's like, it's stuck all the way, right? Like full, full throttle. It's like speed.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's kind of like speed meets Con Air.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they try to brainstorm ideas for how can they slow down as much as possible to try to make this landing. So they know the number four engine. So if you're, if you're sitting in the plane, the number one engine mm-hmm. is the one furthest to your left, furthest away from the fuselage. The number two is on the left, but closer to the fuselage. Number three is on the right, close to the fuselage. And number four is on the right, but the one furthest away. So that's the one that lost the propeller, the number four, the one on the far okay. right. So they decide, hey, maybe we can shut down an en- another engine, and that'll slow us down. We can still fly with two engines. Oh, we just have to yeah, shut yeah. down another engine. And help maybe balance it out. Yeah, right. So pop quiz hotshot. Uh, you've lost number four <laughs> engine. <laughs> which, uh, which engine do you think you would shut down? Number one number the far left? Right. That's what you think. Wrong. <laughs> Lucky for them, they're talking to John Minton who knows his stuff and he knows mm-hmm. if you shut down the number one engine, the number one engine runs the hydraulic system. <gasps> so if you shut that oh. down, then you lose all your hydraulics and you lose your brakes and you lose everything. So you can't shut number one down. You have to shut number two down. So now asymmetric, a little, little asymmetric. A little. Bit. They were already dealing with that. It's Yeah, it's not too bad. The number one and number three are working. There's, there's still one on each side. It's not terrible.
1: And who's the main pilot? Who's, what's the name of the main pilot? Or I guess in this case, it would be probably Nicolas Cage.
0: <laughs> it was James Gibson. James Gibson, okay. Nicolas Cage from, uh, from Con Air. They're coming into land in Anchorage, and they are approaching at about 170 knots, which is 50 knots faster than usual. So this is really, mm. really fast. How much were they able to slow down by cutting off one of the engines? It was not... A ton. It dropped a little, The speed no, dropped a little no. bit. There's no recording of it. You have to also remember mm-hmm. back then, this is an older plane. The flight data recorder yeah. was one of those metal foil ones. There's not a lot of precision in it, so they don't, they don't know exactly. They're coming into land, 50 knots faster than usual, lower the landing gear, but the captain doesn't like it. He calls for a go around. What do you mean? They raise, what? They raise the landing gear and take off again. He didn't like it. <laughs> what, what do you not like about it? Nicolas Cage being all... Yeah, I think he thought that they were still coming in a little too high and too fast, and he didn't think they were going to be uh-huh. able to stop in time. Okay. Because at the end, to, to raise the stakes in true Hollywood fashion, at the end of yes. the runway, there's a bunch of houses. Oh, my God. So if they run off the end of the runway, they're going to collide into a neighborhood. So they need to make sure, no matter what, that they stop on the airport on the runway. So And I bet that's where his daughter is. <laughs> So Captain Gibson says, i got to get my daughter. <laughs> says, no, we're not going to land. i am got to get the bunny to my daughter. <laughs> That's, you, Chris, you're too good at that. <laughs> they go around and they make a second attempt. On this second attempt, Captain Gibson decides to start his approach from lower, from only 800 feet above the ground. That's real low, right? That's real low. That way, the plane's speed won't increase as it descends. Because you think about it, if you start descending, your speed will increase. And they can't pull the throttle back. So if he starts low, he doesn't have to go down very far. So there's not a bunch of speed generated. Okay. He also realizes that once they touch down, that they're going to have to kill the engines as well to try to help slowing down. So they don't go off the end of the runway. They just like
1: turn off the ignition, I guess equivalently, because otherwise it's going to keep pushing them. Huh?
0: Right. But the problem is that killing the engines will also stop all of the lift on the wings, this, this plane is designed so that the wind being pushed back from the propellers goes over the wings and helps provide the lift that it needs to fly. So if they kill the engines, there's not going to be any more lift and they're not going to be able to take back off again. So if they go through with this and they touch down and they kill the engines, they're committed to it. There is no going around for a third time. In the
1: first go around, did they
0: actually touch down? No, no. They got, they got low. Okay. So it's, yeah, man, this is great. So many stakes. <laughs> so much stakes. And also remember, like I said earlier, if you turn off the number one engine, that kills all the hydraulics. So then they'll lose oh, directional yeah. control and they'll also lose the hydraulic brakes to the plane. Oh my God. So they can't do in- They're basically, they land and they just have to hope they landed good. Right. So the plan is they're going to land and once they touch down, they're going to kill the engines and then deploy the emergency brakes. And hopefully, you know, <laughs> the plane will slow down and they won't go off the end of the runway.
1: In our movie version, one of the hunters, John Malkovich, has a feud with the pilot. Because <laughs> is trying to kill him. It's just like know, a subplot. It's, yeah, it's a subplot, but it still adds act, added drama. Maybe, yeah, they have, a, they have a, a feud
0: going on. In the movie version, the pilot and John Malkovich's brother flew in the war together. And John Malkovich mm. blames the pilot for his brother not coming back. Yes. And so, he, yeah, something like that. Okay, so they touch down. And they execute their plan. They kill the engines and deploy the emergency brakes. But the problem is, under the pressure of the speed they were going, remember, they're going really fast. The brakes burst into flames. <laughs> oh, my God. They land. The brakes catch fire. One of the tires bursts because of this.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Where, where are the brakes located, like, in the plane? Like, are they near the tires or, like? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, the fire is located down by, uh, okay. by the tires. And the plane ends up veering off the runway into a ditch before coming to a stop at the end of the runway. The fire response team then covered the plane in foam and miraculously, all 15 occupants of the aircraft exited the plane unharmed. That is, that's crazy. Yeah, absolutely crazy. The first officer in an interview, he says like, you know, they, they did all this. They pulled the emergency brakes. The emergency brakes catch fire. And he said he could see that ditch <laughs> off the side of the runway. And he just said like, oh, we're going in the ditch. <laughs> just like kind of matter of
1: turn or anything
0: right yeah this this is like very matter of factly this really doesn't have anything to do with the incident but i thought that this was really cool and speaks to the poise that the captain has the planes landed everyone's fine the plane rolled off into the ditch the captain addressed the first officer and the flight engineer before they got off the plane and gave him one last order for the flight and he said that before they left the plane, they all needed to put on their coats, their ties, and their hats when leaving the plane. Wow, it's such a movie moment. Yeah, he, yeah, that we, he like just imagine like the three of them walking away with their sunglasses on, looking cool, with the plane in the ditch behind them, still on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in the movie version, in the movie version, they're putting it
1: out as they walk away.
0: Yeah, that's like such a, a, a cool moment to be like, yeah, we're we're gonna, we're really gonna put is. our stuff on and walk out of here. Wow. Now for the investigation side of things. This is all, that was yeah. all the incident. So there are problems with this investigation. There was a, the MTSB investigator was Ron Schleed. He could not determine a probable cause in this accident. Can you guess why? Because the propeller was never recovered. Right. It's in the ocean. The propeller and the gearbox both are lost at sea. There's no way to find, like they're out over. Think about how remote that part of the world is mm-hmm. and how remote that sea is there's no way they were going to find it. So they yeah. they couldn't find the propeller, couldn't find the gearbox. Those are lost. So regardless, the NTSB comes up with two probable causes. It could have been a petite crack in the structure or a gearbox catastrophic failure could have caused the separation of the propeller. And these are both kind of... Sim- we've talked about incidents similar to this. We, I don't think we ever talked about mm-hmm. like a gearbox catastrophic failure. But I mean, we've talked about propellers coming off and this type of accident yeah. in the past. So... That, that's kind of the thought process they're giving this. And the Lockheed Electra had a history of vibrations. And since 1965, there had been four cases of propeller loss on Lockheed Electras. It was one of those things where they're like, yeah, it's probably this. I think that mm-hmm. it wasn't super pressing because even by this time, it was already an old plane. Not many people were flying it. I think it was just kind of a, a situation where that plane's not going to be used much more. Mm. And
1: that specific plane, was it out of commission or did they... That's a good question, Chris.
0: That plane still flies to this day. Oh my God, really? Yeah, it was, you know, this is kind of the end of the episode. I'll I'll skip ahead. You know, we said Reeves folded in 2000 and the plane was Mm -hmm. unregistered in 2001 and was exported to Canada where it was used as a firefighting plane. And it continued in this role as of August 2020, operating as Airspray 484, dropping fire retardant on wildfires in Northern California. It returned wow. to its base in Alberta, Canada on August 28th, 2020. It has a new tail number and it's still airworthy. and was in service as recently as June, 2022. So it's a firefighting wow. plane now. Which is ironic because it caught fire. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But it knows more about fire. I think the big question mark, and this one they were able to answer, mm-hmm. was what happened to the controls? Oh, yeah. Why were the pilots not able to move the controls, but the autopilot could? What happened was when the, when the number four propeller came out and caused that gash on the underside of the plane, mm-hmm. it, you know, damaged the whole floor structure, which caused the whole plane to kind of shift a little bit. And it caused those control cables to get pinched amongst the metal so that they couldn't be oh. moved. That's why they were stuck. And it was like concrete. Oh. However, the autopilot to move its cables, it used hydraulics. So hydraulics are stronger than human muscle. So the hydraulics in the autopilot was able to overcome that pinching. Oh. So it was
1: using the same s- cables, but it's just hydraulics. Okay.
0: It was a different set of cables, but they were also pinched. They like the cables ran oh. parallel to each other. Okay. So all the cables were pinched. Correct. There was also that other wrinkle where over time, the pilots realized that they were able to move the controls a little bit too towards the end. Mm-hmm. And that's what gave them like enough movement to be able yeah. to land the plane. It turns out that them constantly trying to push the controls and constantly trying to, you know, maneuver them made the control cables act kind of like a saw and they cut Mm. channels in the metal that was pinching them. So by moving them back and forth over and over, they were able to cut small grooves into the metal that was pinching the cables and was able to give them a little bit of control.
1: So that helped. It wasn't like slicing cable. Okay.
0: It could be bad. Do it too much, right? And then your cables fall apart or or the, the plane, the structure falls apart even further. You know, they didn't know what was going on, but they managed to cut a little bit into the metal, regain a little bit of control. Wow. Captain Gibson was honored for this successful landing by meeting with President Ronald Reagan in the White House. Airline Pilots Association also honored Captain Gibson, First Officer Gary Lintner, and Flight Engineer Gerald Moose Lauren later in 1983 with its Superior Airmanship Award. Oh, and I forgot to say... The thing I, I would kind of mentioned earlier at the beginning of the episode is, despite the fact this was in 1983, there's video footage of this plane coming in, <laughs> making the landing. There's footage of the, the aborted number one landing and then the successful number oh. two landing. The local news found out what was going on and they sent a news crew out there. Remember, they had four hours to get there. Yeah, yeah. So the, there is news broadcast news footage of this happening. Granted, it's not great quality, but it exists, and I'll link it in our social media. Captain Gibson actually flew with Reeve for six more years before retiring, and he eventually passed away in 2010. I think he was like 81 at that time. That's awesome. Just them like working together and like... Yeah, and the first officer also kept flying. He retired eventually in 1996. And the interesting footnote about this incident is the flight engineer, Gerald Moose Lauren, Two years after the flight, he married that flight attendant, Wendy Kroon. <laughs> what? Such a movie. <laughs> The one who looked out and saw the propeller and everything. She ended now, up getting married. Now we got a the love story engineer. in this thing, Gus. <laughs> so presumably when he went out to look at the engines, you know, she was out there looking with him as well, you know, at the engines. It, and then he oh went back God. into the cockpit and then she came in later and they ended up getting married two years after that. This is such a movie.
1: Who, who's who, who? Wait, so who's that? Should that be like Steve Buscemi? Is that who? Or, or Oh, I guess, <laughs> that's not exactly a one to one. I know. I, I'm just going with real Conair casting. Or Danny Trejo. We got Dave Chappelle or Ving <laughs> Rhames. Great cast in this movie of ours. Great cast. Amazing cast. Yeah.
0: So that's why you see there's a lot going on here, even though this is, I, I knew this would be a shorter episode. It's a very straightforward incident, but I just think the stakes were so high. It's so dramatic. Oh, yeah. And there's so many like yeah. interesting little things going on within this incident.
1: In the movie version... Our John Cusack was... You know how the investigation figured out what was going on like after the fact? They figured it out while the plane's flying, still in the air. So that's like our, uh, on the ground, uh, an on-the-ground subplot. Just. Right, just to round it out. And maybe, maybe, maybe John Malkovich is responsible in some way. I don't know. You know how they <laughs> never found out the, the, the real reason why the propeller fell off? Yeah. In the movie version, maybe it was John Malkovich.
0: Like by accident or on purpose? Like he was walking by know. and he just kind of like... Hits the propeller out of frustration before the flight and it like loosens Could it or be something. something like that. Yeah.
1: Well, that's that's like for we'll, we'll figure that out when we get further along in the screenplay.
0: Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that like on the second treatment. All right. Well, that's it for Revolution eight. I love this, this one. Everyone lives, but it's like super yeah. high stakes and so much drama it's going awesome. <laughs> on. It's got everything, including a very happy ending for everyone, especially for a flight engineer and the flight attendant. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, like I said don't forget to check out social media at Black Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I will find a way to link that video. I've watched that video. I'll uh, I'll link it or or post it on our socials. That way, you can see it as well.
1: Do they have any just pictures of the plane afterwards, like the the gash and the whole and like the in the plane?
0: When I was looking into it the other day, I don't remember seeing any. I'll look again and see if I can find some. If I can find some, I'll, that's definitely the kind of thing I would post. I don't know if there are. Any though. I'll, I'll I'll do some digging around. I'll, I'll see what I can find, Chris. One last note before we go, make a bit of announcement, let everyone know. After three amazing years of doing Black Box Down, we're uh, deciding to sunset the show. We're gonna be uh, putting the show on hiatus here in a couple of months. We're gonna run through this current batch of episodes we're in and our supplementary content. Our current plan would have us ending at the end of June. June 28th would be when our last episode comes out. It's always weird. Voluntarily choosing to end something, I feel like yeah. we've done a lot of great episodes, but I don't want to get to a point where we're rehashing stuff or not doing ones that we're really passionate about. You know, right? You know, you know what I mean, right? Like, you, I, I want to make sure we're excited and doing something new all yeah. the time.
1: Well, you want to end it the best way, yeah, right? And you on hiatus is like the word where it's like if there are things that come up and we want to talk about them or we'll cover them, it's not saying. It's not, yeah, maybe coming back at some point doing other things or special things we want to talk about, but like, you know, you you want to end things the right way, not yeah. just continue on forever.
0: Yeah, we have a huge list of a bunch of different accidents and incidents we want to cover. And I think even through the three years we've done, you know, I think maybe we did half of them, but I, I feel like we did the best half. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we've been <laughs> selective about all of them. That's kind of why we did revolutionate this week. You know, it's not an episode, I think, that we would have done. We we didn't do it initially because it's, it's kind of a short one, right? It's like very straightforward. There mm-hmm. is a lot of interesting elements to it, which is why I really wanted to make sure we did this one before yeah. we go on hiatus and before we put this podcast to bed. And also, we both individually, you and I both also have other podcasts that we're working on as well. Well, currently we have mm-hmm. Tales from the Stinky Dragon, which is released weekly. It's a Dungeon and Dragons podcast. You can listen to us there. But we also have other projects that we want to work on that we're hoping to announce and begin releasing kind of in the near future as well yeah this this is not our last episode like i said we'll we'll be done june 28th end of june just want to give you a heads up that way you know that it's coming i hope you're excited for our upcoming episodes yeah and thank you to everyone who supports
1: us and and hope you continue to support us with our new projects yeah all right we'll be back next week like our screenplay in our alaskan fish tour (laughs) (laughs) all right bye bye